TGIM Team RE. This is episode 313. It wasn't fun anymore. It's like, this is what I'm going home to do after work to just check out. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Carolyn. Carolyn took her last drink on February 21st, 2019. She is from Wisconsin and she is 30 years old. I've been mentioning in a few episodes how here at RE, we're a team. Paul started something amazing and over time it has grown. I'm thankful for everyone that is part of this team, and I'm thankful for everyone that is part of our community. Before I get started, I wanted to say that I'm just really grateful to be a part of this, and I'm really proud of what we're doing. I want to give a special shout out to Alan. Alan is our new member coordinator for Cafe RE, which is our online community. He does so much for everyone that joins our community, and I just wanted to let him know that I appreciate him. Also, another shout out to Chris. Chris is our media guy here at Recovery Elevator. He's also a brother in in recovery, a brother on this journey, and he helps me put together the podcast week after week, upload it, make our pretty Instagram tiles. It's a lot of work. So thanks, Chris. All righty, let's work on finding your better you this week. Lately, the concept of dehumanizing has been crossing my path a lot. Dehumanizing is defined as depriving a person or group of positive human qualities. I was listening to Brene Brown's most recent podcast episode on Unlocking Us is the name of the podcast that I hear. I know she has a couple. And she was mentioning that she refused to participate in any conversation that involved dehumanizing somebody else. No matter how much she disagrees with a person, she isn't going to engage in dehumanizing language towards them. Hurt people hurt people, right? And if we respond to events in our life by dehumanizing others, how can we change the world that we live in? That show got me thinking. And a few days afterwards, I started reading Pema Chodron's new book. It's called Welcoming the Unwelcome. I was a few chapters in when the concept of dehumanizing popped up again. The chapter was talking about polarization, big words in this intro, guys, big words for my uh, second language brain, polarization and the dangers that dividing people bring to our society and to our well-being. Here's a paragraph from that chapter that really stood out to me. It says, polarization is at its most problematic when we dehumanize people, when we forget that the people we judge criticize and disagree with are actually as fully human as we are. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that we habitually dehumanize others for many reasons. For instance, if people have political views that we consider narrow-minded or backward, we may have trouble seeing them as wholly human. If they don't believe in climate change or evolution, we may unconsciously disqualify them as fully developed members of the human race. We may condemn people for their behavior or criticize them because they smoke or drink or wear what we consider tacky clothes. Even such minor differences in our habits and preferences can cause us to feel fundamentally separate from others. 
I'm bringing this up because I see polarization and dehumanizing everywhere, even within recovery. It's not enough for people to make the decision to quit drinking. We then become judgmental about the ways in which people choose to quit drinking. I see people judge other people for drinking non-alcoholic beer. I see people judge other people for not drinking non-alcoholic beer. I see people judging others for attending AA or people judging others for not attending AA. We are just creating this division when deep down the goal is to actually come together and close those gaps that make us feel so isolated and alone. Back to Pema Chodron for a little bit. One of the reasons why I love learning from this woman is that she provides tangible tools that I can use in my life. I was reading about polarization and dehumanization, nodding my head, but also wondering, well, yeah, we all do that, but how can I do less of it? How can I make it better? In that same chapter, she brought up a tool that I thought is brilliant, and I want to share it with you all. It's a practice called Just Like Me. So what she proposes is that when we're faced with someone that brings up that separateness feeling within us, that, that wanting to divide, that division, divisionary, not sure if that's a word, but when we are faced with someone who brings up that in us, where it's easier to see the differences versus the similarities, the challenge is that we zero in on them and we say to ourselves, just like me, this person doesn't want to feel uncomfortable. Just like me, this person loses it sometimes. Just like me, this person doesn't want to be disliked. Just like me, this person wants to have friends and intimacy. That's powerful, yeah? To me, it felt like an amazing way to break away from the judgment and to help me see things differently. This practice made me think of focusing on the similarities and not the differences, as we say again and again sometimes in, in these recovery circles. We're all fully human. We can hold boundaries and hold people accountable without dehumanizing them. How's that for a change? All right, eso es todo. And before we hear from Carolyn, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe Ari, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. With supportive and educational webinars hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together. And with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $19 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online webinars, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. 15% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Carolyn, good to have you here. How are you? Hi, Odette. I'm doing well. Thanks. I'm really happy you're here and let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink, Carolyn? My last drink was February 22nd, 2019. All right. And can you give listeners a little background on your life? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Absolutely. I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm 34 years old. 
I'm single and I don't have kids. I have one beautiful 13-year-old German Shepherd who is my baby. And I have many hobbies. My profession is graphic design, web design specifically, but I'm very creative and artistic. So many of my hobbies include like drawing, painting, murals. I like to do a lot of crafts and I'm super outdoorsy. I like golfing, fitness, snowboarding, hiking, camping, gardening. Yeah. And one of my favorite hobbies is just spending time with my family and friends. Love it. Anything outdoors. That's right. And I'm soaking it all in now as the winter season is upon us in Wisconsin. It seems to change pretty quickly. And right now is that sweet spot where it's just super enjoyable. How cold does it get over there? Oh, (laughs) that's a good question. (laughs) It gets very cold. We uh, like title it a polar vortex. It's freezing. We're talking like uh, 20, 20 below where it's actually dangerous to go outside. So yeah, like during, um, I like to soak in and remember these very pleasant temps and seasons. So then I can lean on those memories when I'm in the frozen tundra. Yeah, it's definitely seasonal. Uh, As you know, I'm in San Diego and (laughs) We right now, California has a lot of fire, so the the weather is definitely changing. But the stereotype is it's always sunny and we don't really see a lot of the seasons coming and going. So I feel like that would really help with gratitude and just waiting for the next season and taking it all in, like you said, because, you know, it's not it's not permanent. That's exactly right. And um, I think that many Midwesterners leverage that mindset and do actually you do like just really enjoy like a beautiful the beautiful summer fall spring weather more enjoy these last these last hints of summer before it gets super cold I don't do well in cold weather so I I I commend you because I feel like I get so grumpy when I'm cold have you experienced like a Wisconsin or just like any winter before I don't even know what it's like. The coldest place I've ever lived in is in Vancouver. And it's very similar to Seattle weather, a lot of rain and definitely short days in the winter and some snow that just becomes slush, but negative 20. I I don't even know what that feels like. It's brutal. You should just, yeah, you you don't want to experience it. It's not not cool. All right, Carolyn. Well, let's let's talk about your story. Give listeners some background on your history with drinking. When did you start? When did you realize alcohol was becoming a problem? And what got you here with us? So I started drinking when I was around 14 or 15 years old. And I think that would have been around the year 2000. And at that time, It was like a freshman in high school, only drinking on the weekends type thing. But it was something that I always looked forward to. And I really, I really made it part of my identity at a very young age, because it gave me a tool to fit in, feel cool, feel accepted. And just because of the household that I grew up in, having parents that were often like very angry, I was always in trouble or being yelled at. It kind of just gave me that outlet. It gave me a way to 
be social and to numb at a young age. So after high school, I moved away and went to college. And that's when my drinking really ramped up. It basically became like almost a daily thing. I was pretty much drinking every day. And I worked in a restaurant where it was very much a part of that scene as well. And I also was on a rugby team where like the drinking culture and rugby went hand in hand. And similar to high school, I really just ingrained that party girl persona as part of my identity. And it seemed like that was just a big part of who I was. And that's when I did meet my who would be husband in college around uh, 2008. And we were we were drinking buddies. I mean, we were also companions and had a connection more than just drinking, but that was the foundation of our relationship. And everyone knew us as that couple that just loved to have a good time, fun, outgoing people that like to party. And although we had a good like friends relationship, I knew that something was lacking there. For a lot of us, it's like, oh, all these things could go wrong. But alcohol was not one of the things we considered. At this point, were you thinking like alcohol may have to do with this feeling that I'm having? Or were you just like not even thinking that alcohol was a problem? I was not even thinking that alcohol was a problem. You know how it's difficult to look back where I'm like, I think there might have been something like something inside me knew that I drank too much, but I didn't have the awareness to like like put two and two together and see how so many areas of my life like weren't driving because of alcohol. It wasn't until I realized that it was a problem that I I can look back now and say, no wonder that relationship didn't work or that this, you know, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship, but yeah, looking back, I, I can see that. Yeah. In hindsight, you can see that. But obviously, when we're in the moment, especially like you mentioned, if you're being surrounded by that environment and your relationships did include friendships and with your boyfriend at a time did include partying a lot, it's really hard to develop that awareness in real time as it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Tell me what happened later, Carolyn. He proposed eventually, correct? Oh, yeah, that's right. So I was at my college graduation party surrounded by my friends and family. And at this time I I had identified that like I I was not in it for the long run with him. He popped the question and I was drunk at my party and just um, accepted his proposal. And being the people pleaser that I am, I like went through with the marriage and um, the wedding rather. And it was a huge, great party and everyone had a great time. And then after this, after the wedding, I was just like, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. I was struggling. And because I was very conflicted about that decision, I had made the marriage that I was in and just having a growing um, internal conflict with it all, knowing that it's not what was best for me and not the life that I wanted. But I was very afraid to confront that and, again, chose my friend alcohol to numb Mm -hmm. that struggle until, I mean, it ultimately 
ended because I couldn't, I like couldn't move it forward anymore. That had to be so hard. I, from my own personal experience, feel like that inner turmoil is so exhausting and so hard and it feels so lonely. So I, I can't imagine how hard that chapter in your life felt and how you found, I mean, a lot of people find that unconditional friendship in alcohol. But I was um, grateful for that because like after, you know, going through divorce and a really um, challenging time in my life, it's when my drinking went from like a fun party thing. I already had like a substance abuse problem. There's no denying that. But it was no after like after going through divorce and stuff, it wasn't fun anymore. It's like this is what I'm going home to do after work to just check out. And like I should mention that all along the way I had my um anxiety had been building and not just through divorce or but like it, it started in college and I could never put my finger on it. All of a sudden like when I was around 22 years old, I started getting anxiety and it, it was building and building. And I would also use alcohol to relieve it, which we all know in turn just worsens it. But yeah, going through divorce, it wasn't fun party drinking anymore. I mean, there was that on the weekends, but every day after work, it wasn't, it was just maintenance. And I'm thankful that, you know, like the hard times, also, you know, magnify the good because if it wasn't if it wasn't for me going through that low, I wouldn't have had that tipping point where I'm just like, whoa, this is um a problem. So that was probably around 2014-ish. So there there was still, you know, like many or a, like four years between when I had the awareness and when I actually started to try to change the behavior. Yeah, it's something that it's like the seed is planted and, and it takes time for you to develop and grow that awareness. And my question at this point in your journey to you is, were you talking to anybody like alcohol was your friend, but did you have one friend or did you ever go to therapy through the divorce? Were you talking to anybody about your struggle or were you just bottling it all up? So it wasn't like I at that time, it sounds nuts because I knew that I drank too much than what was physically healthy, but I didn't I at, like still at that time, looking back again, I don't know how I did not recognize it as super like problematic drinking like substance abuse. It was it just seemed like, oh, you know, if you have um, I had basically brainwashed myself into just like knowing myself as the um, party girl that like drinks and likes to have a lot of fun. I didn't see myself as like an alcoholic or someone with a drinking problem because I surrounded myself with enough, you know, like-minded people that it just kind of baffles me now. It seemed kind of normal. It wasn't until the like, once I did have the that um, like mental tipping point after going through divorce, though, that like I did just bottle that up. Tell me what happened after Carolyn, you went through your divorce, you were it was around 2014. I know your so sober date now is 2019. So you were starting to feel a little bit about 
a little bit of awareness around the fact that you were drinking more than normal. And like you said, it. I really like that you mentioned that shift between social drinking to just knowing that you were using it as a coping mechanism and, and doing more in in an isolated matter back home. So walk me through what happened from around 2014 to February 2019. Did it just keep slowly progressing? Yeah, it kept slowly progressing. And I was becoming more and more unhappy. And I, I like I have a very optimistic and like free spirited personality. And it was becoming, you know, more of a facade to be that person. And my anxiety was just getting so bad. It was, you know, just like crippling anxiety every day. And then I'd come home and drink more. And it was probably around 2017. I was over at my sister's and um, hanging out with hanging out with my sister and her husband. And he had mentioned that he hadn't drank for two weeks. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's crazy. He hasn't had a drink for two weeks. And I was like, really? Why? And because I mean, we, my sisters and I, we always like party drink together. And his answer was just like, I don't know, just not that into it, just kind of over it. And I remember thinking, I don't think I've ever gone two weeks without drinking. And then stumbled into the the online quiz to see if I'm an alcoholic, which uh, not to my surprise, I definitely was. And I also retook the quiz to see if those answers would change and they didn't. So that's what started. I I don't even, they weren't attempts. They were just planned breaks um, between like I took a few three week breaks within a couple years and you know, and like during the breaks after, after like a week or two without alcohol, I would feel like the, like the fog would lift or like the goggles would come off and I could just like, you know, feel lighter. My anxiety would lessen and my life in every area would improve. And then I would go back to drinking because I couldn't handle, you know, like my social life without it. And, you know, I, I basically white knuckled it for through these these breaks from alcohol. And then in 2018, I had to be on medication for a month. And it um, was an antibiotic that was like very dangerous to drink on. Not like we advise you not to. It was like absolutely no alcohol. It can be really damaging to your liver. And I've never even admitted this out loud, but I I drank on that medication and that scared the hell out of me because I then truly understood the severity of my disease and was like, you know, accepted it as that and was just terrified because it was like, okay, this is definitely not um, something I'm in control of. And all through like even when after I took that that first quiz in 2017 or whatever it was it I had started listening to podcasts but would listen and, and it, you know engage in the um, sobriety world 
on an as needed basis, meaning like I'd, I'd use it to help me power through my breaks and then just like abandon it when I'm ready to go back to my drunken lifestyle. But then after that scare, it wasn't really a scare The you know, the incident or phase with that um, medication and realizing I couldn't stop drinking is when I decided to take it seriously and get my get my act together. I'm really glad that you're bringing this up. And thanks for being brave and sharing because this happens to a lot of people this like, I'm going to dip my toes in the sober waters and label it as something else because permanence is really scary. I'm going to label it as uh I don't know. I'm going to do the whole 30. I'm going to do a 30 day cleanse, dry January, like all of these things that we do for breaks. And they're also a part of your journey, even though we go and drink again sometimes. But that was part of my journey as well. And your awareness grows each time and you start listening to your body and learning a little bit more of like, okay, when I don't drink for two weeks, this this will come up. This will feel better. My sleep will feel better. My anxiety will feel better. So you learn so much along the way, but I think it's important to talk about how sometimes our best looks different in different phases of our life. And I just want want to say thank you for sharing because there's something about doing things perfectly. And like once once it clicked, I once I did that quiz, I knew what I had to do and I stopped drinking. Well, it, it takes some time. And it sounds like you made that shift from like mentally from thinking I'm going to take a break to thinking like, oh, shit, I need to commit to this because I'm even scaring myself. Yeah. And although I had moments where like I knew inside that it was a problem, it wasn't until I was like actually scared like that, that I was just like, okay, this is not something we can ignore anymore. And like you're saying, just like with you know, not doing things perfect every time it it's like, whether like, like through the divorce, and with like having that, you know, scare with like taking the medication, I'm thankful for the hardships or events that did eventually, you know, cause me to reach that tipping point. So you took that medication, you also drink and then did you have a rock bottom afterwards? Or what got you to February in 2019. I was listening to, I think I was listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast and someone mentioned Annie Grace's The Snaked Mind. And I had already read like some Quitlet before that too, but I read This Naked Mind and Quit Drinking the next day. I was just, I was just like, whoa, okay, something clicked. And I literally just didn't want to drink anymore. I was and I'm not saying it was all downhill from there. But it it like something really changed in my mind where I just no longer desired uh, alcohol. And I did not feel deprived without it. Amazing. I think every single person I've interviewed has mentioned this book. It's so powerful because it really does address the actual cognitive dissonance and it addresses things that we're blindsided with, like our subconscious and how the toxicity of the substance, it it gets at it at such a different angle that I think her strategy is not only truthful, but it works. 
Right. It works. And like, I'm really into like the, the like self-help books, memoirs and things like that. And this is a very different approach from that where, you know, thinking about it, I'm like, I'm surprised that was like so effective for me, but yeah, it really hit the mark. And I know other people who like struggle with alcohol. And, um, I always recommend that book because it changed my life. So something clicked with that book, but I want to ask about your body and your physical symptoms. You weren't craving it anymore, but walk me through your first three to four weeks on this journey. We get a lot of people saying, I thought I'd, I'd feel great and I'm so tired or I'm so grumpy. And uh, how was your experience weaning your physical body from a substance that your body was used to receiving? That's a great question. And I thought I, I actually had different phases. So week one felt I, I felt anxious, kind of like sweaty, <laughs> just like my body is just like pushing out a lot of toxins. And I had gone through that before doing the like multiple breaks or whatever. And then like for the first three weeks, I wasn't sleeping very well. And I felt very emotionally sensitive and they could have, it wasn't just because I was like not well rested. I did feel like, like just the slightest thing. I'm not, I'm not a crier, but like whether it was happy, sad or anything, I could like burst into tears at any given moment. So that was interesting. But I, I, I just kept like looking at my tracker on my phone, like my day counter for date, like um, alcohol free days and uh, just listening to podcasts. And, you know, I, I wasn't craving alcohol. Like, at, like I said, after reading that book, I wasn't like, I want to be drunk again, or I, I wasn't wanting that feeling. It was just like, changing my feelings. I just wanted to change my feelings but not necessarily get drunk. And like I was chain smoking cigarettes. It was awful. Like, but because it was just like something to like take the edge off or give, you know, give me that fix. And then around like short, like four week four is when I turned a corner. I felt like just a lot, everything got a lot easier. I was sleeping better. I wasn't like obsessed with what day it was anymore. And I still felt some, what of a little bit like emotional, like I was, I was a little bit emotional, um, like more like quick to upset than I normally would be. But I mean, my energy was just through the roof and yeah, that's when things just started really coming together for me. And you sharing that you were feeling extra sensitive, I immediately thought of this thing that we we share with some of our members in our Facebook groups, and it's write a goodbye letter to alcohol. And immediately I was thinking, well, you were grieving. Like, Carolyn, you you said earlier that the first attempts that you did your social life. And, you know, it's hard to commit to, you know, you want it, but then there's also all of this unknown and you're allowed to miss something that you don't want in your life anymore. And I feel like a lot of us don't really connect the dots that when we quit drinking, we're also grieving, grieving. It's like a shedding, like you just shed a skin and, and 
it, and it there's a lot of feelings. So I'm happy you brought that up because it, it does happen. Uh, uh, and we're also not numbing out. But sometimes we grieve, especially if we did find comfort and companionship in alcohol, it feels like a breakup sometimes. Did you um did you have sober friends or people in your circle when you quit drinking? Or was it like, I did, but I made them as I went. Um, I joined Cafe Ari, which is our little online community. And I was talking to so many people and I still had plenty of day ones more than I can remember. But I felt like I kept coming back. But I also felt like it was hard to reconcile with my decision of leaving quote unquote, my old life. It didn't mean that I changed my whole life, but it just like leaving this part of the identity of being social. And for me, it was um, getting together with other moms and talking about what was going on with the kids while we're having drinks. Like there was a lot of change. And I do feel like for me, at least personally, change is hard. And I was grieving, even though I had people around me, it was just like, ah, like this adjustment, like I want it, but I'm still scared. And I know what's comfortable. So I could go back. And then I was like, no, but I already know that I'll feel better. So it's this inner turmoil, and it slowly gets better, but it's totally normal. Yeah, for sure. I have, well, I have, I have three sisters. And my oldest sister, who is four years older, she quit drinking three years ago. Well, like she had already been sober for a couple years when I decided to quit drinking. And she has been like my confidant inspiration, just like she's, yeah, she's my best friend. And I couldn't have done it without her. And I'm not just saying that because like, if it weren't for her, I like, seriously couldn't wrap my mind around like what a sober life looks like. And I just watched her thrive for a couple years without drinking, not missing it. And I'm like, okay, so that is possible. She is anything but deprived. Because honestly, like I it before that, it didn't really make sense to me with like my lifestyle, social circles, all of it. I was just like, I don't know how that would be doable. It's so great you have her and it makes all the difference seeing someone and being, I always love saying stay on your lane, like don't compare your journey to other people and this applies to everything. But I feel like there's something about admiring someone and 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 being inspired in a positive way like I want that if that if that that it's more of a sense of like camaraderie and if she can do it I can do it too like a sense of hope and it's important to make conversations with those people, right? If you not just with sobriety, but if you see someone that's consistently hiking, and you want to hike more, well, then ask, you know, like, where do you go? Like, make those connections. And I do think that is extremely helpful. And it makes you feel not only like it's possible, but it is, but it makes you feel less alone. And it sounds like you went from struggling with this on your own to now having someone even not just a friend, but in your family that you guys can team up on this. So that's so cool. I do have two other sisters. My my twin sister is, you know, like we're obviously not the same person, but we have like we had like a very similar upbringing obviously and until February 22nd, 2019, we were drinking buddies and we drank a lot together and we could hang with the best of them. She, however, is in that it's not like a yo-yo diet phase, but she's doing the whole 30 more and more frequently. And 
I believe slowly coming to terms with the fact that she is going to like, I don't not coming to terms with the fact that she's going to quit drinking, but that she like needs to, and that this is a problem. And she, you know, having two sober sisters who are really open about it, it can be uncomfortable, but I know that when the time comes, which I know it will, she's going to have the two best support systems like ever. And I, I like I've just thought so many times, like, I can't wait to share recovery elevator with her. And I um, lit like all my quit lit books and everything, because it wasn't until recently I actually told her, like, I think that you have a problem with alcohol and I'm, it's not coming from a place of judgment. I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience. Like I'm going through it and like, you can't like, not, not like you can't fool me, but like you, not like you can't fool me, but I just know better. You're my twin sister. I know her better than anyone. So. And you got her back. So that's going to be really good. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I told her, like, I, I said, I know I told, like, you know that I quit drinking and I haven't, like, been 100% transparent, like, about the reasons because for the first, like, few months, I was just saying, like, it was a long, a long break. I was doing, like, a cleanse because I didn't want to put pressure on myself for quitting, but I basically came clean with her and was like, it was, it's an addiction. I, w- I was like very addicted to alcohol. And I just told her that it is something that is a lifestyle and does require ongoing maintenance, you know, and that I just told her about some of the resources that I use to stay strong in sobriety. What is some of this ongoing maintenance for you? What does it mean to be protecting your recovery? What do you do on a daily So fitness and nutrition is very important to me. And it always has been but I was like a, you know, health and fitness freak by day and like heavy drinker by night. And it just wasn't exactly jiving, you could say. So now like the um, my fitness and nutrition, like on paper, like looks the same, but I feel like it's way more like therapeutic. And I, it's just like, gotten to a point where it is like my therapy, I'm very like present and focusing on what I'm doing versus like, nursing a hangover and dragging my butt to the gym and lifting the weights and doing the motions. I'm like, I feel like I'm really like nurturing my body and just like appreciating the actions of like, you know, making healthy, delicious food for my body and like doing boot camp workouts, lifting weights, walking with my dog. It just feels, feels so much better. And then I also keep a gratitude journal that keeps me focused on just, you know, positive, it helps me shed light on like, some small everyday things and some larger milestones. And most of them that I put down in my journal, I'm like, wow, that wouldn't have happened if I was drinking every day like I used to. And then podcasts, of course, talking to and then um, talking to my sister, Laura, who I was telling you about, she's like my sober buddy. Yeah. And I like to 
read a lot of Quitlet too. What do you do when you get a trigger or you have a curveball in life thrown at you or you feel like you just need some relief? What do you do now? I exercise. I um, get outside or work on an art project. I love to um, paint because like I'm creative for my job, but like painting or drawing, just doing something for myself is just extremely freeing. And I'll also just like dance or sing, (laughs) turn up. I'm really into music, jam bands and bluegrass specifically. So I will just crank up some tunes and dance in my living room. And um, that usually does the trick. Amazing. I love that you mentioned (laughs) activities that are grounding and, and art and drawing really help anything that just brings you back to this present moment is always going to help and and it's important to also make it something that we enjoy we're big believers in fun here and it's it's supposed to be fun it's not supposed to be a miserable journey and it can be fun right and like I remember listening to the podcast and it being helpful listening to people talk about how you just need to like work through the feelings identify a craving for what it is and it was in, have you heard of uh, Rachel Hart? She is like a quit drinking podcaster. She is a therapist and helps people like quit drinking, but she had one podcast that really worked well with me. And it basically like dissects how your brain is functioning in the different phases of a craving And she coins this think, feel, act cycle. And the part of your brain that craves alcohol and has been trained to is like the the unsophisticated animal part of your brain. And then there's a different part of your brain that's like the, the logical part. And that's the part you need to leverage to like work yourself through a craving and basically just say like, bug off alcohol. I don't need this. This is my animalistic brain talking, saying that, you know, I need this substance to, you know, scratch that itch, so to speak. But if you sit with it and work through it, it will eventually go away. It always does. In the beginning, like I said, I had always smoked cigarettes and before I quit drinking, I, I always I smoked heavily while I was drinking. But if I wasn't drinking, I probably had like a couple cigarettes a day. But when I quit when I, like that first month when I quit drinking, I was like smoking a lot. And that started making me feel awful because it, it was just disgusting. But then after six months without alcohol, I was like, okay, I'm disgusted with how much I'm smoking my, you know, I might not be drinking, but my cigarette smoking is kind of out of control right now. And I'm, so I was ready to quit smoking. And that's when I really felt like the importance to focus on working through those cravings, because being without both of those was very difficult for me at first. And it's very easy to quit drinking not it's very easy to fall into this, but it's very normal. Normal was a word I was going for. It's very normal to attach to something else. And it's okay if that happens as well. It's also, I want to normalize how many people start smoking or start developing a sweet tooth. Or for me, oh, yeah. I, for me, I started 
dancing with the idea of engaging with my eating disorder again. So it is completely normal because our brains are extremely smart. But I think having that information and having those tools that what you mentioned, tell you what's actually happening in the brain, not only helps you have a better understanding of what's happening, but also really gets rid of the shame. Because instead of feeling like, oh my God, I thought that my decision would be solidified. And now why am I having this craving? And like, you, what's wrong with me? Like, instead of reverting to those, like, what's wrong with me type of questions, we are more able to understand like, oh, no shit, this is happening. This is what's happening in my brain. And you're able to kind of even remove yourself, zoom out and see things differently, which I think really helps because it can shift from being a frustration to an understanding of what's happening inside of you. And you can have a better relationship with yourself as well versus beating yourself up consistently if things keep coming up. Yeah. And I, you know, even after like a year and a half away from alcohol, like there's, there are still like certain behaviors where I can see like potential for addiction. So it's, you know, whether it's like shopping, fitness, I myself, um, like you have um, a history with eating disorders and there, it, there is still like a spot in the brain that, you know, is ready to, latch on to that addictive behavior. I totally agree. And Carolyn, we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, perfect. If you could talk to yourself on day one, what would you say to Carolyn? If I could talk to day one, Carolyn, I would tell her that once she reaches that three or four week milestone, that things are going to get a lot easier. Yes. What was a light bulb moment that you had during this journey? The biggest light bulb moment I had was when I had the tipping point and no longer felt deprived without alcohol. And I realized that my life is going to be awesome without alcohol. What has recovery made possible for you? Recovery has opened up a lot of doors for me. I recently just started a screen printing apprenticeship, and that's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And I'm also going through the process of shopping for a home. That's something that I had always wanted to do, but never had. And it's just made my confidence. It's just really improved my self-confidence too. What's your favorite ice cream flavor, Carolyn? That would be mint chip. And before we <laughs> depart, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. You might have to say adios to booze if you continue drinking on antibiotics, even though it's very dangerous to do so. You're the best, Carolyn. Thanks for being so brave. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. And thanks again. I can't wait to air this. All right. Thanks, Oda. Take Bye. care. Bye. Very well, Team Ari. That's a wrap. And before I say adios, I want to leave you with a little challenge for the week. Try out the just like me practice with someone in your life this week. It could be a family member, a friend, 
someone at the grocery store, anybody. When you feel judgment appear and the urge to criticize someone else, pause and try to lessen the gap between you and them. I'll leave you with another quote from Pema on this topic. We can't presume to know exactly what someone else is feeling and thinking, but we still do know a lot about each other. We know that people want to be cared about and don't want to be hated. We know that most of us are hard on ourselves, that we often get emotionally triggered, but that we want to be of help in some way. We know that at the most basic level, every living being desires happiness and doesn't want to suffer. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, let's be kinder to each other. Let's be kinder to ourselves. I love you guys. thinking.